Let's pray. Lord, this morning before we lift up some specific things uh, regarding these next few minutes that we spend together, I want to pray for another pastor and his family and for this, uh, the church that he pastors, James Gilbert. Lord, we want to lift up James, first of all, as a brother in Christ and a friend and a fellow husband and father. Lord, I pray that you would guard those two roles in that order and uh, that he would be husband first and father second and then pastor and shepherd third. Pray that his uh, ministry, that, that you have him serving in at Bethel AME in Greenville would be fueled by worship and wonder and uh, that the same would be true of his role as a husband and a father. Just know how easy it can be uh, for these things just to become a job and where he just gets it done. And Lord, I pray that you would guard his heart from that, that you would refresh him and renew him with the gospel week by week as he's studying and preparing to preach and as he's spending time with your people. I pray that he is um, living and vibrant and joyful uh, and sober all at the same time and that he'll be useful and available and attentive uh, for your service. We pray for Bethel AME serving on on the north side of town. Lord, we want to pray for the ministry there uh, to their surrounding neighborhoods. Lord, I'm burdened with James for the crime that surrounds their location and uh, for drug use, for broken families, um, for all that seems to go along with that. We pray with James for uh, transformation. We pray that you could use Bethel AME in whatever way that we could come alongside as uh, light and truth and salt and aroma to transform that side of town. Lord, when we see Christ seated and reigning and ruling and you placing all things in subjection under his feet, we imagine in our minds and our hearts that side of town placed under Christ's feet. And these families that have just been devastated, restored, renewed, worshiping, intact, engaging your people, walking in faith, enjoying you, and declaring and proclaiming that side of town belongs to you. Lord, we pray that you'll give us opportunity and that we'll be faithful to walk in opportunity to come alongside Bethel AME. Lord, in these next few minutes that we spend together, I want to first of all lift up those family members that are here today that have joined uh, their family being here for baby dedication. I want to pray for these family members couple things. First of all, that they would see that their families are walking in truth each week and that we are a sober uh, people and that we're not a club and that we have a meal to eat each week and it's an important meal and that we need it. It's our ultimate reality. Lord, too, I pray for these family members that they will not uh, just endure these next few minutes just to get to the dedication but that they can actually engage this message and this truth and this exposition of this word. The Holy Spirit will engage them and that they'll be encouraged if they are walking with you already and if not, that they will be um, maybe stirred that this is a legit journey 
and that they can be part of it. Lord, for the rest of us who are here weekly for our just weekly meal, we just pray for that ultimate reality. We pray for that thing that gives us a chance to regroup and recenter and reorient and redirect every single week. We rush to this table this morning because we need it. Without it, we lose sight of what reality really is. With it, we have eyes for your work and your plan and your sovereignty and your design and your goodness and your grace and your mercy, even in messy and difficult situations. We turn this time over to you for your use and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We've been in the first six verses of chapter 3 for the last few weeks, and we're continuing on in these verses this morning, looking especially at verses 3 and 4. I'd like to read all six verses, and then I want to take a minute to refresh you on context, and then we're going to climb into our message this morning. I'll give you two kind of a map and a plan for the morning, because I want you to know, I want you to be able to anticipate the journey that we're about to go on in the next few minutes. Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what we're doing these last few weeks and these next few, as the Lord gives us opportunity, considering Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That last verse in this little section here is reminding a bunch of people that are on the bubble the importance of holding fast to our confession and our confidence and our boasting in Christ. The problem in this context in the Hebrews church is these guys were going through a very difficult time. Their faith was on the bubble because they were being persecuted and they were suffering for their faith. And some of them, it seems, were considering going back to Judaism. This church was, we believe, to be a Hellenistic Jewish, that means a church that's outside of Israel, that's dispersed in the Roman Empire somewhere. Hellenistic means they're speaking Greek, and they're likely reading the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. LXX is the little acronym for that, little abbreviation. This little Hellenistic Jewish church is likely in Rome, right under the finger of Nero. They're considering going back to Judaism because it's hard to be a Christian in that context, not only because of Rome, but also because of Jews. Christian Jews or Jewish Christians face some of the worst persecution at the hands of Jews. And these guys are going through a tough time. And they're considering bailing on Jesus because Jesus is hard. Christianity is just hard. 
last couple of weeks, we've considered, looking at this passage specifically, we've considered through their eyes just how bankrupt this is. The Hebrews preacher has pointed out to them just how bankrupt it is to bail on something that's hard for something that's easy just because it's easy. That in some ways, they would be trading their birthright for a bowl of soup if they were to go back to Judaism. We considered the last couple of weeks this reality. This is a crazy thought. We considered that New Testament Judaism is tantamount to Old Testament idolatry. For Jesus says, if you reject me, you've rejected the Father. So New Testament Judaism, Judaism right now, you can be worshiping Yahweh, talking in Hebrew and having sweet, awesome prayers to Yahweh. But if you've rejected the Son, it's idolatry. You're not talking to Yahweh. That may be a difficult thought for you. It's a difficult thought for me. But that's the argument the Hebrews preacher is making here too. Don't go back there. Just because Yahweh was in that before Jesus doesn't mean Yahweh is in that now. Because Jesus was the fulfillment of that. You bail on Jesus, you bailed on God. It's a strong argument he's making with them. And I thought about this these last few weeks. We've kind of landed in this place. I don't think that any one of us are in danger of going back to Judaism because I don't know that any one of us, I don't know, some of you may have come from that context, but I don't know that any of you did. But we have our versions of easy things that we might fall back on. You might consider falling back on a Christianity that's not honest and genuine and sober and life on life and non-glad handing. You might consider falling back on a Christianity that's just sort of a pep talk each week that's led by cheerleaders in Jesus' name, forgetting the reality that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with much grief. Forgetting the reality that true Christianity is a sober walk. Joyful at times, often, but always sober. We have our own versions of Judaism that we could fall back on, so it's hopeful or it's helpful for us to climb into their context for a few minutes and then climb back out and examine our own. We may find some application. I think we will again yet this morning. Now, in this passage that I just read, we're going to climb in specifically looking at verse four or 3 and 4. But having up to this point, I want to give you sort of a big picture before we look at these, these two verses. Having up to this point stressed continuity between Moses and Jesus, i.e. Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. Now the Hebrews preacher is stressing discontinuity with Moses. And in fact superiority of Christ over Moses. Now the argument takes a different direction. For though Moses and Christ were both faithful, he didn't say one was more faithful than the other in the previous verses that we looked at these last couple of weeks. Now he shows a disconnect because he shows Christ as a whole different sort than Moses. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is what's called a simile. Some of you who paid attention in your English class may remember what a simile, may remember what a simile is. A, a comparison using like or as. Those of you who are English teachers are saying thank you for the reinforcement there. Verse 3, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses 
as the builder or a house builder receives more honor than the house itself. And then verse 4 is in my Bible parenthetical. It's set off in parentheses. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. As I studied these two passages and peered at these passages for these last few weeks, up until this week, I'll be very honest with you, I looked at verse 3, that simile is sort of the central passage that we were going to be considering this week. And I looked at verse 4 as parenthetical, like it is right here, like sort of unnecessary, like the Hebrews preacher was just sort of being wordy and just wanted to throw that in there, like God's the builder of everything, duh. I didn't need that Hebrews preacher, but as I peered at that more and more and began to study these two verses, I realized, first of all, that that parenthetical verse, verse 4, is not only not parenthetical, not only is it not necessary, it is the central passage for these six verses. These six verses, you remember the words that are in there that's used over and over again is the word house, house. House. I think it's used seven times in this passage. This passage is about God's house, that being us. And the central passage that our version set off as parentheticals, kind of unnecessary, is that God built that house. That's why you shouldn't bail on it. Because God built that house. So not only is that passage not parenthetical, it's actually key to making sense of verse 3. So verse 3 and 4 summarize the point of verse 3 and 4. After peering at this thing for these last few weeks, and especially close to this this last week, here's the point of verse 3 and 4. This is where we're going to start this morning, and this is where we're going to come back to this reality. The point of verses 3 and 4, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the same measure as God has more honor than the universe he created. I'm going to say it again because it's where we're going to start this morning and it's where we're going to land. And I'm going to give you a little map of where we're going in between. But this is going to be home base for us. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the same measure as God has more honor than the universe he created. Now, what I'm going to do in these next couple minutes is we're going to go on a little tangent and we're going to develop a problem. We're going to develop the problem because in order to deal with the problem, we have to first recognize there is a problem. So we're going to develop the problem. It's going to seem like a tangent, but if you follow the tangent with me, you'll find that it's going to land back at home and you're going to find that you needed to go on the tangent. Okay, so the plan is we're going to develop the problem, and then I'm going to give you two things that will help with the problem, and then we're going to land right back here at home in the Hebrews 3 context, hopefully with a different set of eyes. Okay? The problem. This point that's being made here about Jesus having more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has than the house itself, would be a point that's very easy for us to miss because we don't think that way. It would be a point that we could very easily miss because we don't have ancient minds. As I studied this passage, more and more I realized is that ancient people thought about things a lot differently than we do. For we think about things in their sense of how they serve us. It's almost where we go almost immediately, and it's almost always where we end. I was sharing this, my thoughts with the staff earlier this week, and shared these things about these situations where you might walk into a building, or you might walk, you might see a structure and marvel at the structure itself and never really think about 
who made it, who designed it. Aaron Adele brought up the interesting illustration or an interesting thought about the sharper image stores. You know, you're at the airport or you walk into a Brookstone and you walk in there, you see the most ingenious things. Ingenious or genius? I don't know which. Maybe both. You see these most amazing things like laser nose hair removers. I mean, these things that you just got to have. A motorized tie rack in case you don't have enough energy to look through your ties in the morning. You buy a motorized tie rack. I wear a lot of ties, so I put in my request for Christmas. The laser ear hair trimmer, electronic toenail clipper. Some really some pretty cool things that Sharper Image or Brookstone might have, and I'm being facetious there because there really are some amazing things. But seldom do you think, who designed that? Who thought up that? Usually we move right to, well, how will that serve me? And how can I get it? Who walks through an old house or a theme park or a cool old train station and wonders, who built this place? Who looks at the Washington Monument and thinks to himself, I wonder who designed and built that? Who, when you're driving through some of these little towns in Texas, drives past the center square, past some of the coolest old courthouses you've ever seen in your life, and thinks to yourself, well, who built that one? I wonder who built that one. Most people really think, well, who cares? So you never give it a thought. Immediately and oftentimes, maybe not for every single person in this room, but I think for many of us, we shift right to how it benefits us, how it serves us, how it might entertain us, stopping short of who's behind it. So our modern minds can miss the point that's being made here by the Hebrews preacher. Seldom does the modern mind consider the designer, the creator, the architect. Seldom do we think beyond how we can use something and how it can serve us. The ancient mind was different. The ancient mind thought about these sort of things, considered the builder of a house, considered the architect and designer, considered the mind and designer behind a structure. I found an ancient writing by a guy named Justin Martyr, from a book called Apology. It's one of the first um, apologists in Christian history. In the second century, ancient writings that pointed toward the glory of the builder over the built. Another writing I found referenced was by Philo of Alexandria, a first century philosopher, pointing to the glory of the builder over the built. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 6. Christy and I, these last few months, have been reading through the Bible using the McShane Bible Reading Guide. And it's funny how the Lord connects things sometimes that I just never anticipated. I was reading through 1 Kings these last few weeks. And I happen to be reading through chapter 6 and 7, where it's given the details of Solomon, Solomon building the temple. You know, David got the red light on that. Solomon got the green light. So Solomon begins to build the temple. And here's some of those details. I'm just going to read a few excerpts for you. And I want you to hear about, or I want you to listen to the repeated word in this passage. We're climbing into the ancient mind for a few minutes so that maybe we can begin to start to think like these guys. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to jump around in this chapter. You probably won't be able to follow me, but you're welcome to try. 
In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he, this will be Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. He made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams would not be inserted into the walls of the house. Now I'm going to move into sort of the excerpts. Beginning in verse 9, he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. Verse 10, he built a structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Verse 14, so Solomon built the house and finished it. Verse 15, he lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. Continue on. He covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits in the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. He built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most, most holy place. When you go through the rest of this chapter, the word you see used over and over and over and over again. I counted 26, and just now, as I'm reading, I saw a 27th. Is the word he. Do you think Solomon put his hand to a single hammer? You think Solomon put his hand to a single chisel? He didn't build all those things himself, but he was the designer and the architect behind it, and he got the glory for it. The ancient mind is not just giving the details of the temple. It's putting Solomon's name all over it. He built it. He did this. He did that. It could have said it was just built. Here's how long this was. Here's how high that was. But it it puts he all in front of these things. I thought it interesting. It continues on through chapter 7. I'm not going to do that to you, but jump, j- jump over to chapter 10. I was suspecting, as Christy and I were talking about this, as we're reading together over the course of the week, I was suspecting at some point this is going to come full circle. All this he this, he that, he this, he that. That at some point, something's going to come full circle with Solomon, where he's going to get the glory for the temple that he built. Now watch this development in chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. You might be familiar with this interaction. She came to Jerusalem with a very very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. He's demonstrating his wisdom, which we would expect. It was requested, and it was granted. Now watch in verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built... The food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. 
Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who's delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. As I was reading chapters 6 and 7 and seeing he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that, 27 times in chapter 6, another 14 or 15 times in chapter 7. And then I see the queen of Sheba show up. She marvels at his wisdom. She sees his temple, and she doesn't marvel at the temple. She marvels at the man behind the temple. She marvels at the man who built it, who designed it, who planned it, who essentially commanded it into existence. The ancient mind thinks a little differently than we do. The ancient mind went to the designer. There are other ancient examples. You might be familiar with the story of Hezekiah building a tunnel underneath Jerusalem. It's actually a tunnel that you can continue, you can go to now. It's been unearthed. It's 533 meters long, and it was to provide water to Jerusalem when there was a siege. It's a brilliant design. In fact, they started at opposite ends and ended up intersecting. It's amazing to think about how they could do that. It's well under the earth. And they called it Hezekiah's Tunnel. His name is attached to it because he gets the glory for it. Another example would be Herod's Temple. The second temple that was rebuilt after this first one that Solomon built, destroyed, or it was destroyed by the Assyrians. It was rebuilt by Herod, and they called it Herod's Temple because Herod built it. The ancient mind gave the glory to the builder. But then there's the modern mind. This is more than a nifty history lesson. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to show you this is more than a nifty history lesson. It's like, huh, see how different our minds are from theirs? I want to show you that this introduces a real significant problem. I want to show you what the modern mind has in common with the fallen mind. What the modern mind has in common with the fallen mind. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul is telling here in many ways the human story. And it's a heartbreaking story. He's developing the depravity and fallenness of man. And what man has actually done. Listen to what develops here from verse 18 on through verse 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's what that ungodliness and unrighteousness look like. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. You see it in a sunset. You see it in a mountain range. You see it in a beautiful uh, seashore with these massive waves crashing against the shore, one right after another. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. You see it in a beautiful night sky. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Seashore. 
a sunrise, a mountain range. So these men, these ungodly and unrighteous men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look what happens. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God as creature, or I mean as creator, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Trading the creator for the created. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and watch this, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They worship and serve the created thing rather than the designer and author and creator behind it. This mind, this fallen mind that has so much in common with the modern mind sees the beauty in a sunset and says, wow, that is a beautiful sunset. Driving down 1570, it's amazing some of the sunsets we see when you're heading out toward Cross Point from L3 direction. Some beautiful sunsets. The fallen mind sees a beautiful sunset like that and says, man, I got to get my iPhone and I got to take a picture of it so I can upload that on Facebook. And all my buddies on Facebook can go, wow, awesome. But that's where it stops. That's where it stops. It'd be like Sheba showing up and saying, this is one amazing temple. Wow, awesome. I'm ready to go home. And never stopping and parking in Solomon's palace and saying, Solomon, you are the man. You are something else. The modern mind, unfortunately, has a lot in common with the fallen mind because we are prone to worship the creature rather than the creator. This mind, this fallen mind, worships human form and lusts after the body rather than marveling at the God who designed it. Men, you need to know, it's not exclusively men, but it's especially men, that that's what you do when you lust after another woman. You're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's all it is. You're worshiping the creature and trading the truth about God for a lie. This mind might marvel at a mountain range and is so smitten with the mountain range, this mind, this fallen mind that is often associated with the modern mind might move to that mountain range and just take up a hobby of hiking and backpacking and living in the mountains week after week after week, weekend after weekend after weekend, and if you talk to folks that live in the mountains, a lot of times they'll say, my God's out there. Say, hey, man, you want to come to church? You want to hear about Jesus? You want to hear about the creator who made that thing? No, my God's out there. I go enjoy creation. That's my God. That's worshiping and serving the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So whether it's the modern mind are the fallen mind, we with renewed minds should know that we should never stop short of the builder, the architect, and the designer. The renewed mind operates differently. Turn to Psalm 19. The renewed mind gives glory to the designer, the creator, and the builder, whether it's a sunset or a mountain range or the church. 
The renewed mind gives God the glory. We glory in his creativity. We glory in his architecture. We glory in his design. Psalm 19 is a beautiful picture of this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are amazing, but they point to something. The heavens are a tutor of something that's greater than the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy over the course of a day. The rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist of Psalm 19 got the point that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are not the glory themselves. The creature points to the glory of the creator. Psalm 36 Listen to this passage. Just listen to it. Don't turn there. Listen. Psalm 36 proves that we should all be students of this creation. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. The heavens, the clouds, the mountains, and the deep should leave us, if we handle them properly, like Sheba, breathless without words, because we're enjoying the creator and the designer behind him. We should be like Sheba, marveling. We should be like Jeremiah, who we believe wrote First and Second Kings, who's saying over and over again, he did this, 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 he did this. I'm seeing the marvel of this, and I can't take my eyes off the designer and the author behind it. He gets the glory. That's the way the renewed mind should work. Now, I'm going to give you some help. We identified the problem, leaned in the direction of the way the renewed mind should work. So I want to give you two things that will help you Engage the realities of the renewed mind. First, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And at the same time, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to have a finger in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as I begin to read Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see the beauty of this. The first thing I want to introduce to you that you can enjoy this, this morning, that you can enjoy as families, so that we could ultimately get the point that the Hebrews preacher was trying to convey, is first, seeing God as creator twice over. Seeing God as creator twice over. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and this key word coming up, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
Darkness is over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the first picture of the gospel in our Bibles. It's so cool to me that it lays out right there in verses 1 and 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 1. The first picture of the gospel in our Bibles. There's darkness everywhere over the face of the deep. And God says, let there be light. And you know what? There was light. He speaks light into existence. Enjoying, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Enjoying God as creator twice over. First, we have to enjoy that he's first of all creator. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Holiness of God that I highly recommend. And listen to what he says about this first creation. The first sound uttered in the universe was the voice of God commanding, let there be. It is improper to say that this was the first sound in the universe because until the sound was made, there was no universe for it to be in. God shouted into a void. Perhaps it was a kind of primal scream directed at the empty darkness. The command created its own molecules to carry the sound waves of God's voice farther and farther into space. Yet sound waves would take too long. The speed of this imperative exceeded the speed of light. As soon as the words left the Creator's mouth, things began to happen. Where His voice reverberated, stars appeared, glowing in an unspeakable brilliance and tempo with the songs of angels. The force of divine energy splattered against the sky like a kaleidoscope of color hurled from the palette of a powerful artist. Comets crisscrossed the sky with flashing tails like 4th of July skyrockets. The act of creation was the first event in history. It was also the most dazzling. The supreme architect gazed at his complex blueprint and shouted commands for the boundaries of the world to be set. He spoke and the seas were shut behind doors and the clouds were filled with dew. He bound the Pleiades and buckled the belt of Orion. He spoke again and the earth began to fill with orchards in full bloom. Blooms burst forth like springtime in Mississippi. The lavender hues of plum trees danced with the brilliance of azaleas and forsythia. God spoke once more, and the waters teemed with living things. The snail sneaked beneath the shadowy form of the stingray, while the great marlin broke the surface of the water to promenade on the waves with his tail. Again he spoke, and the roar of the lion and the bleeding of sheep were heard. Four-footed animals, eight-legged spiders, and winged insects appeared, and God said, that's good. Then God stooped to earth and carefully fashioned a piece of clay. He lifted it gently to his lips and he breathed into it. The clay began to move. It began to think. It began to feel. It began to worship. It was alive and stamped with the image of its creator. First of all, as creator alone, he's worth worshiping and enjoying. As creator alone, if you think we're about to have a baby dedication with a row of babies up here, they're nearly outnumbering us. They may be, in fact, by now. They were knitted together in the womb. They were fearfully and wonderfully made by this creator. He said it was good. 
He's enjoyable enough alone as a first-time creator. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, For God, the same God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who said, Let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God that spoke into darkness light, spoke into the darkness of our own hearts and shown the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ into our life. And we were created yet again. He told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, unless you are created twice, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And I will create you twice as I speak you into existence, just like calling Lazarus from death to life. I'm recreating you, Lazarus. Come forth. He did that in your life. You can enjoy him as a two-time creator twice over. Man, that's worth enjoying in and of itself. The second thing to show you to enjoy God as creator is to enjoy him as creator twice over. The second thing is to enjoy God as repurposer. Repurposing is sort of a funny thing. Go ahead and put that first image up here. Y'all are ready back there? Yeah, that's good. Repurposing is a funny thing. Repurposing is the practice of taking things that are useless, trash, forgotten, unneeded, superfluous. We put all kinds of things on that, all kinds of words on that, and turning them into things that are useful. I want you to enjoy for a moment God as a repurposer. If we walk into a spiritual version of um, Brookstones, our sharper image, we can marvel at the genius behind the laser nose hair trimmer. But what's better than that, I think, is marveling at what God does with things that are worthless and useless and dated and superfluous. Here's some examples of repurposing. This is a um, a suitcase turned into a medicine cabinet. Cool. Hit the next one. I thought uh, Corey and Kyle now would really enjoy this one. These are like kegs turned into a uh, drum set. Handy. What's the, hit the next one. Climbing rope turned into a chandelier. Okay, next. Tennis rackets uh, turned into mirrors. I mean, what are you going to use those for? They're trash. But you turn them into a mirror, and the, you know, the metro in me enjoys that. I don't know why. <laughs> I enjoy that. I'm sorry. I'm a guy, and I'm, I'm securing my manliness, but I enjoy that. This is a fire pit made out of a washing machine drum or dryer drum. Okay, next. A globe turned into a lamp or a bowl. That, that, I enjoy that too, and I'm a, I can, I'm a man. Next. The boom box. Now, you got to like that, musician, musical types. You got to like the old suitcase turned into a boom box. See, that's trash, but it's turned into something useful and enjoyable. And the beauty of repurposing is the glory doesn't rest on the object. You know, if you see a climbing rope chandelier, you're not going to come in and just glory at that. You're going to think, well, who thought of that? That's genius. 
You're going to look at this and go, well, who thought of that? That's genius. Hit the next one. This is my, that's my favorite. This is a picture that, you know, you go to Goodwill or something like that, and they have these paintings that are just like, oh, man, why would anybody ever buy that? But then you take it, and you paint a monster on it or something, and you hang it in your kid's room, and they never sleep again. It's genius. Keeps them up for months. I think that's so cool, though, because that's a picture nobody would ever use. It would go in the trash, but it's, it's used for something fun in this case. I think that's my last one, right? Okay, you can kill that. These two things up here are our own version at the McGraw House. This thing right here is a card catalog. Those of you who are familiar with libraries, you know this Dewey Decimal System is what uh, the libraries have used for years, and they still use that. They just don't use the cards or the, the catalogs. They, it's all computerized. So these file cabinets that were in libraries across our country, you could get them for a song, but you couldn't figure out what in the world you're going to do with them. You know, beautiful old wood. You know, it's well made. You could, I could stand on this thing. But what are you going to do with it? Well, we bought this thing. It was one of our first pieces of furniture. We bought it for a song, and I made some legs for it, and it was our coffee table for years. All three of our children learned how to walk, holding up, pulling themselves up on this thing and walking around it, repurposing. It was trash, useless. What are you going to do with that? The little candle thing on top of that is just a a shed antler. Not a whole lot you can do with a shed antler, antler, but you can turn it into a candlestick or candelabra. That's what we did, repurposing. And it's something that as people see those things, they don't think, I'm going to glory in that. They actually think, hey, that was a good idea. And I show you these pictures and I show you these examples because I want you to enjoy for a moment these passages in light of repurposing. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think this is the last passage I had to go into this morning. Close. Very close, yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to this passage in light of repurposing. Beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Let's just call all of us dated tennis rackets, dryer drums, card catalogs, um, ugly paintings at Goodwill. And then keep reading. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, and we could add unnecessary and superfluous and dated and tired, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Enjoy him as repurposer. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the author, the designer, the creator, the repurposer. That's what we're meant to do. The other passage I'll just read to you just because it's so worth reading. 
Ephesians chapter 2, just listen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were on the way to the dump. We're on the way to the landfill. But God, being rich in mercy wanting to put his own glory on display. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses on the way to the dump, on the way to the landfill, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up and he hung us from the ceiling for his own glory. Or he put us in the middle of the living room where we could prop ourselves up against it and enjoy his design And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages we could enjoy him as repurposer extraordinaire, as genius, creator. Man, I want you just for a moment this morning consider him as creator and repurpose her and enjoy the genius of God. And here's where this sermon comes full circle. I told you we were coming back to it. Here's where the whole thing comes full circle because our God gets more honor than the universe he created. We built that in these last few minutes. And now we can get the point that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the same measure as God gets more glory than the universe he created. So now we can go back to Moses, our Judaism, and realize that for someone to go back to Moses and Judaism would be like driving down 1570 and worshiping the sunset. To go back to Moses or Judaism is to miss the point of where it's supposed to take you. To bail on Jesus would be like seeing a mountain range and then denying who that mountain range points to. To bail on Jesus would be like witnessing childbirth and then plugging your ears to the message of a designer and a creator and a life giver who knits us together in the womb. It would be like missing that message and then worshiping the baby. To bail on Jesus would be to miss the point altogether. So we with the Hebrews church can look at Moses and the law and a sunset and a mountain range and childbirth as a wonderful tutor that leads us to the greatness that we have in Christ. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for these images that you've given us this morning of author and designer and creator who speaks into darkness and then sits back and says it's good. We're thankful for your design and speaking into the dark void of our hearts and calling us from death to life through faith in Christ. And we're thankful too that 
In supreme irony, you take things that are worthless, that are by nature vessels of wrath, and you reappoint them and redesignate them and redesign them as vessels of grace and mercy and purpose. We enjoy that together this morning. We marvel at your genius. We marvel at your creativity, your grace, your mercy, and your design. We give you all the glory, and we are poised and ready for these next few weeks as we enjoy even more so how much better Christ is than Moses or anything else we could ever fall back on. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we take the supper this morning, I want to share a brief passage with you in 1 Corinthians 10. You can turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. As a repurposed people, we struggle each week with our affections and our allegiance. It doesn't matter who you are or what kind of week you've had. All of us have struggled all week with where we give our affections, who we give our affection to, and where we give our allegiance. We have a God that has prepared a meal for us, and it's a meal that celebrates coming back. He is a God that celebrates the coming back of his people to him. This, this meal reorders things, the way our affections should be, the way our allegiance should be. And here's an opportunity once again this week for his people to come back. Bring your affection back in order. He celebrates with a meal our coming back to him. These Corinthians, they were expected to give allegiance, to share feasts and eat meals of dedication to the city, to the gods of their cities, to their community, to their clubs, to their clan. And I want to read this passage and let's see what happens here. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? All week we've given our affections away. This table is a unifying table. It brings our affections back and our allegiance back. Paul had made it clear that it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to other idols. Look, if it ends up at the butcher, count it God's provision and eat it. However, don't participate in a meal of dedication to anything else. 
You see the difference? If that meat that was sacrificed to that idol ends up on your table through the butcher, eat up. Thank you, God, for provision. But you don't participate in a banquet. You don't participate in a meal in honor of anybody else. Your affections go anywhere else. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, this Lord's table meal is the only meal that you eat in dedication. You don't belong at any other table. You don't belong at any other table. Your affections don't belong at any other table. And when you come together, you're unified in him in a meal that distinguishes you from all other affections and allegiance. Before you were daddy and before you are mama, before you are a Greenville lion, before you are a cattle mills fox, boy, I could start down the college trail, I'd get in trouble. Before you were any of that, before your allegiance to America, you're his. And you don't belong at a table of worshiping any of those others. This meal snaps it back in order for us. This meal reminds us once again who we are. Who we are as a people. So come to this meal. If you're weary and confused, I don't really know where my allegiance is. I don't know where my, my, I've been so all over the map all week and I'm tired. Come to this meal. Repentant and humble. Once again, come back. He will celebrate your coming back in repentance and humility. He will not shove it in your face. He will receive you in repentance and humility in view of who Christ is. Come back. In our context in Hunt County, we always have lots of visitors, typically, and we do this morning too. And we want you to know we welcome you to this table. If you are coming back, trusting in Christ to this table this week, but if you are, as 1 Corinthians 11 warns us, if you are hostile towards another body of believers, if you are crossways with any other people of God, we would ask you to refrain from eating this meal because it would be a meal of judgment, 1 Corinthians 11 says. It wouldn't be a meal of blessing. And we would ask you to search your heart and go back and reconcile before you take a meal here. But for those of you who are remembering this morning your allegiance, you're remembering what he has done in Christ, and you are coming back and renewing your affection and allegiance for him as the creator in awe and worship, then come and eat, come and drink, and enjoy who he is, and redirect your affections this morning. We're going to remember who we are, where our affections belong, and where they should remain. It is crazy, ridiculous that no matter how out of order our affections and our worship get, that he provides a meal that says, come back. This meal's for you. This body broken for you. This blood shed for you. Take and eat. Take and drink. We're going to move into our time of offertory. If you haven't already... If you're participating in the children's dedication, if you want to go get your, your children, I think most of you already have, do that now. Let's pray and ask, God's to, ask God to correct our hearts even as we give and that he would add his measure of blessing to our gifts this morning. Father, you're so good. 
to welcome us back and bring us back. I pray that out of our wonder and amazement that you save us and correct us, repurpose, and reorder us. That out of that, our overflow that we would give generously and sacrificially, not to earn your favor or merit, but to enjoy you and your provision. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, families, y'all come on down here in the front. I'm going to, you've already gotten to see uh, most of these kiddos, and now I want to introduce you to their families. And forgive me if I butcher some of the names or miss somebody. I'm pretty good at remembering um, and pronouncing my kids' names most of the time, but there's 13 coming today, and y'all just make room. May have to move down this way a little bit so everybody can see you. Yeah, y'all move on down this way a little bit. So many that we have to employ help of friends and family to hold them all. I want to introduce them to you, and then I want to briefly frame what's going on here today uh, so that we understand what's happening and what's not happening. Um, I'll just start at the top of the list. Anna Mae Fiesel, right down here, second from the end on my left. Anna Mae, and that's Scott and Tiffany's little girl, Jack, and Alex's little sister. And Hattie Rose Sutton, right next to them on their right. Scott and Lindsay's little girl, Ella, Olivia, and Henry's sister. Isaac Lewis Wetzel, on the very end down there on my left. And that's Jake and Annie's, Abby and Ethan's brother. Taylor Gwen Carroll, right here next to the Suttons. And um, that's Kellen and Angie's, Addie, Krista, and Riley's little sister. Jane Margaret Hall, Jay and Ashley's little girl, Allie and Luella's little sister. Eli Kalen Scheutzer, all the way down on my right. There he is. Mike and Abby's. Ben, Millie, and John Campbell's little brother. Benjamin Thomas Sadler. Terry and Theresa. There, where y'all go? Okay. <laughs> now we got the wolf pack. All right. We got the wolf pack right down here on my right. Emerson Hayes, Callan James, Wren Haley, and that's Cameron and Amanda's. They just went right to zone defense. Didn't even... Passed right up man to man. Michael Staunton Williams, Sadie Hope Williams, Anna Grace Williams, Tommy and Rebecca's three. And this is um, Isaiah and Trinity's little brother and sisters. So let me speak quickly. I think we got them all. Did I miss anybody before I go on? Okay. This is a dedication, it's a recognition that these children are among us. And what does that mean? These children are among us. We're recognizing that before the Lord and before each other that they're here. Okay, that's pretty obvious from sounds and noises that they're here. But let's recognize to each other that they're here among us. Parents, we've provided you some resources, and we'll pass those out on your way out. Books, we've, we've given you a letter for your child to read when they come to faith in Christ and profess Christ and are ready to be baptized. We've got a letter for them. So they'll know that this day happened that you committed and this church committed to walk with them and their salvation. 
parents, we recognize that these children are among us now. But your greatest resource beyond the books, beyond the letters, your greatest resource is right out here in front of you. Your greatest resource as parents who will raise these children in discipline and instruction, your greatest resource is this people. Not a book, not a letter. It's this people that you stand in front of. They will be involved early and often, your children will, in the movement, in the worship, in the singing, in the teaching of this people. And we want you to know they are invited and welcome in all of those things. As noisy as they may be, it doesn't matter. This is where you will find benevolence, wisdom, strength, continue, encouragement, and truth for your children. Right here with this people. Now, church body, these parents are submitting their children to the Lord and to you. This is no insignificant thing. They are not trusting in this ceremony. None of us are trusting in this ceremony. But we are trusting in a gracious God and his promises and his people. We're rejoicing in that there are a people here. These parents are dedicating their children to the Lord, his gospel, and this people. And church, you are committing today to welcome these children to this body, to your families, to your homes, your guidance, your training, and your care. And that's lofty words, but what that means is you are welcoming and coming alongside these parents from potty training to Bible training, all all in between. Some of you thought your kids were out of diapers. As long as you're at Cross Point, I don't think your kids will ever be out of diapers. So this, what's in front of me and what's in front of you is the front line of discipleship and evangelism at Cross Point to raise these children up in discipline and instruction in the ways of the Lord. Here is discipleship and evangelism right in front of us. It's a heavy task, but we'll do it together. So do this. You join me in praying for these families and for this church. And then Ben will come and dismiss. Father, we are excited and we are grateful for a heritage that you've given us. These children aren't chores. They're not burdens. But these children are a heritage from you and we will steward them as such. And we need your help. I pray that you would encourage these these parents and these families in some trying times, that you would keep them balanced and not get too excited and too impressed with how they're parenting, but not get too low and discouraged with how they're parenting, that they would use this people as their resource and that these children would know they are a part of a people and something bigger than themselves. And we pray that these children would trust Jesus and would follow him all the days of their life and be baptized into this body soon. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.